Hi listeners, this week's book reading episode features Survival of the Friendliest by Dr. Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods. This excerpt is a courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio and is read by René Ruiz. After the reading, you'll hear Dr. Hare's episode from last spring discussing his book with Chris and Kara. Enjoy! When you were around nine months old, before you could walk or talk, you began to point. Of course, you could point soon after you were born, but at nine months, it started to mean something. It is a curious gesture. No other animal does it, even if they have hands. Understanding the meaning of a point requires sophisticated mind reading. It generally means If you look over there, you'll know what I mean. But if I see you point to your head, there are many possible meanings. Are you referring to yourself? Are you saying I'm crazy? Did I forget my hat? A point can refer to something in the future or to something that used to be but is no longer. Before you were nine months old, if your mom pointed, you likely looked at her finger. After nine months, you started to follow an imaginary line extending from her finger. By 16 months, you would check that your mom was looking before you pointed, because you knew you needed her attention. By two years old, you knew what others saw and what they believed. You knew whether their actions were by accident or design. By age four, you could guess someone's thoughts so cleverly that for the first time, you could lie. You could also help someone if they had been deceived. Pointing is the gateway to reading other people's minds, to what psychologists call theory of mind. You will spend the rest of your life wondering what other people are thinking, the meaning of a hand brushed against yours in the dark, a raised eyebrow when you walk into a room. It will always be a theory because you can never really know someone else's mind. Other people have the same abilities you do and can faint, fake, and lie. Theory of mind allows us to engage in the most sophisticated cooperation and communication on the planet. It is crucial to almost every problem you will ever face. It allows you to time travel and learn from people who lived hundreds and even thousands of years before you. Language is important but fairly useless if you do not know what your audience knows. You can teach only if you can remember what it is like not to know. The political party you vote for, the religion you follow, the sports you play, and every other experience that involves other people, living or dead, real or imagined, all rely on your theory of mind. It is also the soul of your existence. Without it, Love would be a cardboard cutout of itself, because what is love without the magic of knowing someone else feels the way you do? Theory of mind is the delight of moments when you both see something, then turn to each other and laugh. 
It is the comfort of finishing each other's sentences and the peace in holding hands and saying nothing at all. Happiness is sweeter if you think the people you love are happy too. Grief is more bearable if you believe someone you lost would be proud of who you are. Theory of mind is also the source of suffering. Hatred burns brighter if you are convinced someone intends you harm. Betrayal is more bitter when you can sift through a hundred memories for every subtle gesture that should have been a warning. Every emotion we have enriches the lens through which we see the world. And though we feel these emotions in our chest, our gut, and the tips of our fingers, they live in our mind and are largely created from our theories about the minds of others. Dog Days My closest childhood friend was my dog, Oreo. My parents gave him to me when I was eight years old, and he quickly grew from a puppy I could hold in my hands to a 70-pound Labrador with a wolfish appetite and a joy for life. On warm nights, we would sit together on the front steps, his head on my lap. It never bothered me that he could not talk. I just enjoyed being with him, wondering what the world looked like through his eyes. When I went to college at Emory, I discovered that exploring the animal mind was a serious scientific endeavor. I began working with Mike Tomasello, a psychologist who was an expert on theory of mind in children. Mike's experiments with babies connected their earliest theory of mind abilities with their ability to acquire all forms of culture, including language. Mike and I worked together for ten years, testing the theory of mind abilities of one of our two closest living relatives, chimpanzees. Before our experiments, there was no experimental evidence that any animal had theory of mind but our research showed that the answer was more complicated. Chimpanzees had some ability to map the minds of others. In our experiments, we found that not only did chimpanzees know what someone else saw, they knew what someone else knew, could guess what someone else might remember, and understood the goals and intentions of others. They even knew when someone else had been lied to. The fact that chimpanzees could do all these things put what they could not do into sharp resolution. Chimpanzees can cooperate, they can communicate, but they struggle to do both at the same time. Mike told me to hide a piece of food under one of two cups so that a chimpanzee would know that I had hidden the food, but not where. Then I would try to tell them which was the correct cup by pointing to it. Almost unbelievably, the chimpanzees, trial after trial, ignored my helpful gesture and could only guess. They became successful only after dozens of trials, and if we changed the gesture even slightly, they fell apart again. At first, we thought chimpanzees had trouble using our gestures because there was something wrong with our tests. But because chimpanzees seemed to understand our intentions when they were competitive, but not when they were cooperative, we realized their failure might be meaningful. In human babies, this is the spark that suddenly ignites always early, always around the same age, and always before we can speak or use simple tools. 
The simple gesture of extending an arm and index finger that we start to use at nine months old, or our ability to follow along when our mothers point to a lost toy or a bird flying overhead, is something chimpanzees do not do and do not understand. This star of cooperative communication, missing from the constellation of abilities that comprise chimpanzee theory of mind, is the first to appear in humans. It shows up before we speak our first words or learn our names, before we understand that others can feel sad even while we are happy, and the other way around, before we can do something bad and lie about it, or understand that we might love someone and they might not love us back. This ability allows us to communicate with the minds of others. It is the door into a new social and cultural world where we inherit the knowledge of generations. Everything we are as Homo sapiens begins with this star. And like many powerful phenomena, it begins in an ordinary way, with a baby understanding the intentions behind her parents' gestures. If understanding these cooperative intentions is fundamental to the development of everything human, figuring out how that ability evolved could help us solve a major part of the puzzle of human evolution. As Mike and I were discussing this one day, I blurted, I think my dog can do that. Sure, Mike leaned back in his chair, amused. Everybody's dog can do calculus. Today, we are going to be interviewing Dr. Brian Hare and Vanessa Woods, although Vanessa won't be joining us today, to discuss their new book, Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. Dr. Brian Hare is a professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke University, and he researches the evolution of cognition by studying both humans and our closest relatives, the primates, whose species' own cognition converged on our own. And then Vanessa Woods, who is the co-author, but again won't be joining us today, is the director of the Duke Puppy Kindergarten, which sounds like the most amazing thing in the world, and is an award-winning writer and journalist. But yeah, so... Anything you want to say? Because I know you're really big into Brian's work before we bring him on. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I have been following his work for many years. He did his uh, undergrad, as I recall, at Emory and, and worked in the Yerkes Primate Center. He does PhD with Richard Wrangham at Harvard. He did a postdoc at Max Planck, worked with Mike Tomasello. These are all big names in evolutionary anthropology, psychology. And, and he's so he's one of these folks who's started off in anthropology and transcended numerous disciplines in the quest for understanding human primate and now dog cognition and the role of domestication, self-domestication throughout evolutionary history. So not just understanding dog, chimpanzee, and bonobo cognition, but how their cognition, our cognition, all of this, they have co-evolved. So we're not mm -hmm. comparing them to humans, but talking about the evolution of all of these species together, which is not a new concept, but it's really being taken in a serious way with, with some uh, good theorizing. And then in the tail end of his book, we can circle back around because they take a few much warranted swings at the Trump administration, which we are now fortunately clear of to some extent and we know not clear of the effects and impacts no, nor no, mentality but, <laughs> but the, the the regimes of friendliness and unfriendliness that we have to compare are mm -hmm. 
discussing. So why don't you bring them on? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Tara. Nice to meet you. Uh, nice to meet you too. So Brian, I burned my garage down. So I'm in my greenhouse at the moment. Uh, not because I usually would zoom from my garage, but because I'm here dealing with stuff at my house, giant fans going and all that. So it, it is a hot compost pile, but I put it too close to the garage, which I then threw coals into because I was cooking down some firewood and just was talking to my mom on the phone and not thinking and walked away and it went poof. I would not have thought that could happen. So like cold, wet coals. And then you also imagine a damp compost pile. It just it didn't make sense to me either. That's uh, that is totally excusable. I could have totally done that. And See? just to let you know, I probably almost burned my house down like four times just with the grill. Because, uh, <laughs> who knew you had to clean those things? To transition to something that's going to make a nice connection. The upshots of all this is we have a great neighborhood and everybody's animal lover. We have four dogs and uh, my neighbors broke into the house and rescued the dogs. Wow. And my husky, as gentle of a soul as he is, we always wondered what he would do. He defended his territory. He did bite our neighbor, but in a gentle way. And then he went to his usual closet. All, all's well that ends well. They all got out. I mean, the story that we're going to talk about today, the story of friendliness. I have one of those neighborhoods where I could make a tidy profit if I actually accepted all of the charity that people want to foist wow. through this, you know? Wow. That's amazing. Does make you feel I always give bit credit better. to my wife because she's super gregarious, but I was told to stop blaming her and to accept some of the blame myself. So, apparently well, I'm I, I'm sure they see you as a good guy too. But I have the same situation in my house. You know, definitely, I'm lucky that my wife has brought all these interesting friends to me. Yeah, <laughs> because I'm not as good of a recruiter of all these wonderful people. I don't think that's pretty much it. Yeah. But but there is there is uh, sorry to distract more Kara but the, there is data on because uh, <laughs> um, I've got my folks just moved here and I was thinking about they're 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 turning close to eighty and so I was worried about them and what they were going to do socially because they lived in Atlanta their whole lives blah 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 and uh, the, all the data is that the men do nothing and that uh, it, basically a man moving a new place at that age is a disaster socially. Whereas women have a much easier time and that a man moving with their wife is going to do much better too, because he'll just borrow her network. This so. is so fascinating. So uh, a colleague and I are, are writing up, uh, actually did write up, it's under review right now, a study looking at how COVID-19 impacted exercise routines and then how people coped with that disruption due to stay at home orders. And women did a lot better than men. And a lot of it was tapping into existing social networks to find support and accountability when you can't go to the physical location right that typically provides that support and accountability oh that's cool okay yeah 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 it's yeah. really neat but yeah so that's what that made me think of like yeah women seem to be better at tapping into those networks and making the connections to just get everything to work a little bit better and a little bit smoother but yeah anyway so thank you for taking the time i know you're on sabbatical and it's got to be crappy having to do things when you're on sabbatical oh no, so, no no this so is much. a total joy I, I i've spoken in uh your class and i think what you guys are doing and where you're doing it is one of the most important things that i know of so i'm here for you guys anytime awesome well let's start where we usually start by finding out more about you and i just gave a little mini introduction because i've known your work for a long time but for our listeners uh we always want to start with origin stories. So, you know, 
maybe not the cooling of the earth version, but because uh, <laughs> you've done so much, but a little bit about your background, how you came to anthropology and then how you came to be doing the work you're doing now, which is so fascinating and interdisciplinary. Well, the story is I, I grew up in Atlanta and I went to Emory and I was really quickly impacted by amazing professors there, both in psychology and anthropology. And I really wanted to get involved in research somehow. I didn't really know how. And I met a professor named Mike Tomasello. And he's, I'm at Duke now, and he's actually a professor here at Duke with me. So it's really funny. My undergraduate advisor is actually here together with me. Uh, I met him then, and he gave me a couple of papers. And basically, the question was, do animals think about others thinking? And that blew my mind because as somebody who grew up with a dog and had a dog named Oreo, who was my best friend growing up, I always wanted to know what he was thinking. I always looked deep into his eye, just like anybody who loves dogs. And like, you obviously assume that this warm relationship you have, this friendship deep and caring is real. And they're thinking about you and they think about you in ways that you think about them. But you can't help to have that little voice in your head. What are they? And so uh, it was like, whoa, there's like a science where we try to figure that out. So I was totally hooked. And I first worked with primates, worked with chimpanzees and a number of monkey species on these kinds of questions. And in that work, I had a conversation with Mike Tomasello where he was making the case that during human development, as we all grow up, before we're able to speak or participate in culture, we have these early abilities to think about the thoughts of others, and they're first expressed through our ability to understand pointing and gestural communication in others. Because when someone gestures for you or points to a location, you kind of have to think about uh, what does it mean based on the context? So, you know, is he pointing to something that I should look at that I haven't seen? Is he pointing or is she pointing to food, uh, a toy, whatever? So you kind of have to interpret that gesture. And in that interpretation, you're thinking about what they're thinking about. And so it's kind of the doorway into theory of mind. And Mike basically said, well, I think in human development, this is unique that only humans develop this ability to follow gestures like pointing and to think about the thoughts of others in that context. And I was raised by a Labrador retriever in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was like, uh, well, I play fetch with my dog and he loses his balls and I point. He goes in the direction that I point. And Mike sort of, you know, at first was like, yeah, sure. When you point, he looks at your finger. And I'm like, no, 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 my gosh, no. They, you know, if I point, he goes and runs in that direction and orbits in that area looking for the ball. And so then Mike next sort of said, well, everybody thinks their dog does calculus, you know, sure, whatever. But when I insisted, uh, I learned something really important about what science really is, because he realized that I was serious. And he said, "Okay, I'm going to help you come up with an experiment that might prove me wrong. And it ends up he was because everybody who's a dog lover knows that dogs follow pointing gestures. And he was wrong. But when he was wrong, he was super excited because he'd learned something new. So that was the start. I was like, this is amazing. That's how I got my start in this whole gig. But that's also such a wonderful example of what good mentorship looks like. 
because you can hear so many stories of mentors being like, no, that's stupid. Go, go do something else and not be open to, you know, the progress of moving science forward. And so I think that's actually a really lovely story as well for, we have a lot of like junior folks who listen to this podcast. And so that is an example of what to look for when it comes to a good mentor. And so you were hooked from then and decided PhD and that's what I want to do. And this is my career. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a, there was a process there that's a little bit more foggy, cloudy at this point in my <laughs> life, but you know, more classes, talking to more professors, but I did get heavily involved in research, probably starting my sophomore year by my junior year. And I actually was, um, I had made the baseball team and, you know, I still was having a hard time getting over that I wasn't going to be a professional baseball player or something, which there was no way I was going to be. So I, I there was a moment where I had to choose science or baseball. And thankfully I chose science. And then before we move on to like the nuts and bolts, you need to tell me what this puppy kindergarten is, what happens, and then describe in disgusting detail the level of cuteness that you observe, (laughs) because we all kind of need that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a crazy origin story too. I didn't start out you know, with the hopes of raising over a hundred puppies in the next few years. But it ended up that both scientifically and I think socially at Duke, everybody needed this. And so I study dog psychology behavior. And one of the things that we think has happened in dog evolution from wolves via domestication is that evolution has altered and shifted how dogs develop relative to wolves. And that's number one. And then number two is that when we're trying to apply what we've learned about dogs to the real world and try to help people who train dogs to do all the amazing jobs they do, one of the things that's become clear is we need to know more about the early education and socialization of dogs and how that affects their working potential later in life. And so it's a little bit like what, you know, has happened with human beings is that there's data that, you know, the early intervention, if you can get young kids into pre-K and kindergarten programs, it has a big impact later in their lives. We sort of had the same question is if we raise some puppies at Duke, and raise them in one way. And if we compare that to the way that these puppies are normally raised, could we get some insight on how we might sort of enhance or enrich their experience so that it'd be more likely that more of them would be successful in their training for helping people with disabilities, detecting bombs, et cetera. But again, the cuteness. Yeah, so that was all the science, sorry. The science. The cuteness, like, do you walk into this puppy kindergarten and does like your head and heart just explode from what? Yes, yes. (laughs) So we have puppies. They're all from Canine Companions for Independence and they're uh, Labrador Retriever, Golden Retriever mixes in different amounts. So they're all golden, black balls of just disgusting cuteness when they arrive. And then we have had somewhere between three and seven puppies. The last two times we had seven. They're not from the same litter. They're mixed from different litters. And we have a hundred plus volunteers, all undergraduates who take two hour shifts twice a week 
to care for them and take care of them. And believe it or not, this was an experiment too. Uh, <laughs> could undergraduates take care of puppies? And the answer is yes. And they did it quite well. And then the puppy kindergarten pre-pandemic uh, was open to mm. the campus. And so we thought that was a good idea, would be okay. And it ended up it was, but we did have to start making kind of an appointment thing because I think in the first week had like 2000 people. So we, we had to dial it back for the puppy's sake. <laughs> yeah. Is that the most sought after undergraduate research experience is the puppy caretaking? Yeah. I thought <laughs> naively that, gosh, I don't know if people are going to sign up for this because they're busy and it's volunteer and, you know, who knows whether people actually commit to this because it's, you know, we have the puppies on campus for 10 weeks. And so 40 hours over 10 weeks and are people really going to want to do this? They're busy. And uh, we had 10%, I believe it was, of the student body signed up. We had to do a lottery to select people. And then we had to come up with all sorts of other hurdles. So we have not had a problem with manpower or actually I should say woman power because it's a, a lot of women who are excited about this even more than the male students. If you had a Husky clinic, I might actually just drive over there and, and volunteer because I practically will like jump out of a car to go run and pet a Husky. The experiments where they would look at how humans to see if they're arboreally pre-adapted will walk in a straight line across the field or veer towards trees. <laughs> I veer towards huskies. <laughs> so. That's awesome. Well, they are gorgeous and mysterious. And one of the things I'm most jealous of is one of my former graduate students who's a professor now at uh, University of Arizona. Uh, Evan McLean, he got to go and work with sled dogs in Alaska related to some of his research he was doing. And I was like, oh, you know, how did you get to go do that? That'd be really cool. So um, that's one of the fun things about working with dogs is you get invited on all these crazy things. I was trying to one up him because I wanted to go work with dingoes. And so I was setting that up uh, when the pandemic hit. But uh, that was my next big dream was to go work with uh, dingoes because that's how I feel about dingoes. I'm very attracted to dingoes. I think they're so cool. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your art because I you started at Emory. I know you went to Harvard and worked with Richard Rangham. I think you went back with Mike Tomasello at Max Planck. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's right. Uh huh. You worked with bonobos, chimpanzees. And for listeners who know the name but aren't able to connect it, you probably know Brian from Eight Genius, from the, there was a 60 minute special on Dognition. You've been involved in a lot of the public engagement side of this work, which is one of the great things about what you do also that we want to highlight. I wonder if you could tell us about that arc of sort of working with chimpanzees, bonobos, and why you now are, from what you said at the beginning, dogs are inherently interesting. You were trained by them. But research-wise, why did you find yourself arcing back toward dogs? And where are you now? Are you fully a dog researcher? Or are you still doing both? Yeah, so that's really interesting. So I hope I don't draw on too much here because there's, there was a lot there. And um, I love thinking about this because one of the big contributions that I have tried to make consciously is trying to create opportunities for new ways to do the type of research we do. And so part of the arc has been driven by limitations and constraints that had been uh, presented in the world about whether I would make it whether I would make it as a postdoc, whether I would make it to be a professor. 
And so people warning that, you know, there was little opportunity. And so basically what happened was I said, well, fine, I'll just invent a new way. And if, if there's not much opportunity that way, then I'm just going to create a new way. And so I can give some examples of that because that drove the arc as well. So when I went to Harvard and I worked with Richard Rangham, Richard did something fascinating. Richard studies wild chimpanzees. uh, And I thought I was going to go study wild chimpanzees. This is another mentoring moment when I had probably my second meeting with him. I said, well, you know, I'm going to go to Africa and I'm excited to talk to you about chimpanzee feeding ecology or whatever. And he said in his British accent, which I will not try to mimic, even though it's really tempting. He basically said, well, that's rubbish. Um, You're doing really exciting work already with Mike Tomasello. Why would you stop that? And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, you should just keep doing this. This is great stuff. So I was like, okay. So that's what I did. He really encouraged me to keep going. And then what happened was over many years of interacting with him, probably by my third year, he had become very interested in the Belaya foxes together with me, the foxes that were selected for friendliness against aggression. And he had realized that they might be a really interesting model for bonobo evolution, because a lot of the things that people had struggled to explain in bonobos made a lot of sense once you saw what selection for friendliness did to the foxes. And so it was his idea. And we started talking about it because I was already working with dogs. And it just kind of grew from that. So this collaboration where we, Richard and I launched this, you know, now 20 year collaboration working on what does selection for friendliness do and testing this idea in bonobos, but uh, to study bonobos. And this connects with the constraint story is there wasn't any place to study bonobos, number one. Mm -hmm. Because before we started having these conversations, there had never been an experimental comparison of chimpanzees and bonobos ever. And so there was never, you know, where a group of bonobos was measured in one way, chimps were measured in the same way, and then they were statistically compared to one another. That had never occurred before. And it's because bonobos were so rare in captivity. So you could only do qualitative comparisons if you were going to do comparisons. So where in the heck were we going to find bonobos? And then the other thing was that in the laboratories in the United States, they were sort of closing down and didn't really welcome behavioral research at the time. And uh, I didn't really want to work there anymore anyway. And so what were we going to do? So Richard said, well, obviously you need to go to Africa. And, you know, huh? Wait, what? And she uh, said not to do that. <laughs> yeah, wait, what? You said, yeah, what do you mean? And he said, you need to, and it was his idea. He said, you need to go to these sanctuaries for orphan apes that are orphans of the bushmeat trade. And I remember, I was like, are you crazy? You can't do experiments in that kind of situation. You don't understand the type of control you have to have and the difficulties. And he said, okay, fine, don't do it but you should probably think about it. And so, you know, fast forward, I'm, I'm there. And uh, it ended up, it was, you know, my whole career, you know, figuring out how to do these experiments in sanctuaries. And oh my gosh, we had the greatest time. Richard actually went with me on the first trip to see Lola Ya Bonobo, which is the sanctuary for bonobos. And we just had a fantastic time. So we did a whole bunch of experiments and comparisons between chimps and bonobos at these sanctuaries to try to test this idea that are they actually self-domesticated? I would argue we have some evidence that that's the case. And I'm excited about that idea. And then when I got to Duke, I continued that work. 
And one of the advantages of working in sanctuaries was if you're working with great apes, and especially if you're doing captive work, the problem was historically you had to be at a university that was near a lab or near a zoo that had the collection of animals that you were interested in studying. But because I'm going to Africa, I'm like every other field primatologist now, and it didn't matter what university I was at. So the reason that I was able to convince Duke that this was a good investment to take me on was because I didn't need a giant bonobo chimpanzee colony. I could go to Africa and do all my research. When I got to Duke, I realized that, you know, I wanted to study dogs, but Again, funding for this type of work is obviously, it always feels like there's not enough. How was I going to make this happen? I didn't want to have animals that I had to take care of. And so that's where the Canine Cognition Center came from. Wait a second, I can invite people to bring their pet dogs in. We have 1,500 people signed up immediately, and I have the largest sample of animals on campus, and it's completely free. And people love to do it. So, you know, this was another thing where people who are trying to get jobs at universities, I've had students that have had great success now going on and kind of replicating this model. And so now there's a new model to how to do animal psychology on college campuses, even in an environment where sometimes funding isn't that great. What I love about this entire arc is that it definitely leads us to why we brought you on here today, which is to talk about your new book that's co-authored with Vanessa Woods. And we introduced the book earlier, but tell us then, why did this book come about? Taking on a book is a big project and it's a lot of work. Uh, and so what made you say, right, it's time to put this all into a book to talk about friendliness and self-domestication and what it means for us as humans? I think what happened was just like I'm sure for y'all, you hear a lot of people talk about survival of the fittest and misconstrue it and misunderstand what it means. And so, you know, all of us try actively to say, well, fitness is a very narrowly defined biologically as how many offspring you leave. So that's really all it means. But unfortunately, in the public discourse, it has been uh, misunderstood to mean something about certain groups being more fit than other groups, which means if they're more fit, they're more valuable, they deserve more things, deserve more stuff, and that inferior groups are somehow not deserving. Um, and so it gets sucked up into this public conversation argument about what different groups deserve or what they don't deserve. And that's, of course, not at all what survival of the fittest means. So we wanted to name the book Survival of the Friendliest to push back against that. And we wanted to talk about survival of the friendliest because I would argue that in all of the big evolutionary advances, if you take a step back and think big picture about evolution, all of them involved a new form of tolerance that appeared that then allowed for a new form of cooperation, whether it's a group of organisms or a specific organism that, you know, began to flourish and really advance and dominate life. It's always a new type of tolerance uh, that leads to a new form of cooperation and dogs are exhibit A, but, you know, we could, uh, talk about other examples too. And so the book kind of makes the case that this has been a big force in evolution and even in human evolution. So it really blew my mind reading about self-domestication with regard to humans in this book, because I was familiar with probably almost everything you wrote about, except I missed somewhere along the way, Rangham's proposition of self-domestication and then when you pointed out in the book 
the relationship between human skull shapes, Neanderthal skull shapes, my brain just about fell out of my skull. So I wonder if you could explain what self-domestication means and then unpack what I said just a little bit. I love it that you caught that because it'll be fun to talk about. So the idea is that dogs and bonobos and potentially other species evolved through selection for a type of friendliness and that that friendliness changes how those organisms develop. Because if you want to change friendliness and replace aggression and fear with a new type of friendliness, you have to do something early in an organism's development. But if you alter neural hormonal development, basically the chemistry of uh, social behavior and its development early, you're going to probably have a lot of effects on other systems in the body. Because early in development, those same chemicals that control behavior and its development also are involved in development of the body and different physical attributes. And so there are these what we call byproducts or accidental byproducts of selection for friendliness that happen because you're changing development to get the behavioral outcome. So the argument is that this process has happened again and again. And the reason we feel confident that it exists is because in experiments on animals where you select for friendliness, you see the change in development that then alters behavior and the body. And so in the case of humans, what we think happened was late in human evolution, there was this type of selection for friendliness. Now, the the reason we think it was late in human evolution is because one of the exciting things is, of course, that there's in the last 10, 15 years, there's a realization that we weren't alone until very late in human evolution, that there were other human species, which every time I say it, think about it, it blows my mind that, you know, 100,000 years ago, uh, maybe even later than that, we were not alone. And Many of these species had big brains. I would argue they're probably cultural and hand linguistic abilities we would recognize. And those are usually the attributes we talk about when we say, well, why are we different from animals? So these other species had those attributes, but they're now extinct. So then that leads to the conclusion, well, it must be something in addition to those things that allowed our species to thrive and outcompete or outsurvive the other species. And so that led us to this survival of the friendliest idea. And so Richard has an idea about what the selection pressure for friendliness may be. I've made a different argument than he has, but where we agree is that it's going to change our developmental pathway and we're going to see a signature of this selection in our bodies. That means it's potentially testable in the fossil record, depending on how good those predictions are and how confident we can be about them. So a couple of things uh, that we can talk about in terms of how it may change our bodies. And just to remind you, the experiment on animals shows that, for instance, when the foxes were selected for friendliness uh, and compared to a control population, the foxes selected for friendliness had curly tails, they had shorter muzzles, they had smaller canine teeth. And the thinking is that was caused by this selection because of the altered development. In humans, the thinking is if this happened in our species as well, we should see some kind of analogous changes in our body. So uh, with Steve Churchill, we did a study where uh, we looked at humans' faces before and after 80,000 years, all from fossils that are thought to be homo sapiens. And what the finding is, is that basically human faces become sort of like the fox's muzzles become reduced in size. Our faces sort of get less uh, narrower and shorter in terms of their length. And then our brow ridges, those brow ridges that you can't miss on so many fossils start to go away. We interpreted that as some evidence consistent with this idea. But the one that really got me, and it's not my own work, was just looking at the literature and trying to see, and this connects to your point for about Neanderthal versus uh, late human skull, is 
I mean, one of the ways apparently people who study fossils recognizes a homo sapien versus homo whatever is the shape of the skull. And critically, it's that we have these globular skulls. So basically, we have a spherical round skull, which I love the word globular. I think that's hysterical. And I love to tell people, what a globular head you have. Um, I like globular and I like lenticular. Oh, yes. Lenticular. I did. I didn't know that. Is that the is that the that's the Neanderthal shape? Yeah. Shaped like a lentil. <laughs> like a lentil. <laughs> I love it. OK, I didn't know that. OK, good. I'm learning. So lenticular. So the football shape of the Neanderthal skull, the, the thinking is that if you increase the neural hormone that sort of is related to more friendliness and less aggression, or the receptors that allow for it to function, that actually has an impact on skull development. And so when you sort of increase the amount of serotonin, which is the neural hormone that I'm talking about in early development, or you increase the receptors, or you block the reuptake of serotonin in mice, apparently they end up with more globular skulls. And so the thinking is maybe this globularity in humans is a signature of some kind of change in the development of serotonin. And then the other really crazy thing is there's this amazing work by Goons and Hublin and others showing that the globularization relative to Neanderthals is in their work shown by an increase in the temporal parietal area of the brain and its rapid development in humans that seems to be unique to our species. So the temporal parietal, it's kind of like above your ear, kind of the area there. And that bulges out really quickly early in infant development and causes that globular shape. Well, guess what those regions of the brain do? Those regions of the brain are heavily implicated in our ability to think about the thoughts of others and read gestures and gestural communication. So if the globalization is caused by this increase in serotonin and it's a unique signature of our species, it actually causes an increase in the size and potentially functionality of the area of the brain that develops incredibly rapidly early in infancy and allows us to cooperate and communicate in a way that other species in our clade did not. Wow. And it's the thing we've been talking about that leads to culture and language to develop. So that's the circular story. And it brings us right back to dogs because it's infants that led us to study dogs, but it was dogs' ability to understand things the way that infants do that led us to this idea that maybe that's how we got that ability. One, that was fascinating and I loved it. And I, this, this whole idea about human globular head shape being related to our friendliness. And a lot of people know the story of those foxes and they haven't really been able to make those connections. And I will say it's evolution's biggest mistake that we as humans didn't end up with curly tails. Um, <laughs> I mean, come on evolution. You missed out on that one because that's what happens with evolution. That's how it works. Anyway, so I want to bring it to like a here and now because we are living in incredibly contentious times where people are often willfully cruel to one another and willfully uncooperative. And you take the Trump era to task in your book as well. And and I kind of want to have you give our audience your take on this and why we're seeing this contention and how do we move on from here? Like, what do we do to, to try to, to bring cooperation and friendliness at the forefront of our interactions? Yes. Well, with humility, I will attempt. Obviously, it's really complicated and 
you know, what I'm going to suggest is part of a solution. But I do think it's informed by human nature. I think not considering human nature in solutions for society is folly. I think you can't ignore human nature. It's not going to lead to all solutions or a complete solution, but you can't have a complete solution without considering it as the idea. So if we're going to do that and take that seriously, then what do we learn from what I just told you? Basically, the argument is we're the friendliest species of human that ever evolved. So then how do you explain the paradox that, uh, have you read the news? And so the thinking is, that the exact same system that we just talked about that leads to globularity that develops early allows us to cooperate and communicate, acquire culture, and also be tolerant and friendly towards others in a way that other species can't, which leads to learning and culture that other species couldn't have advancing much faster. It can shut off. It can turn off. We can actually turn off our ability to see other humans as fully human and consider them as having thoughts or beliefs or feelings that uh, matter or are important. People are familiar with the term empathy. I mean, usually uh, we can just call all that empathy for the point of the conversation. So we can shut off our empathy. So while we can be incredibly empathic and care and imagine and think what it's like to suffer and really be motivated by that to help and to care, we also can turn it off. And what that means is that we can morally exclude, we can exclude certain groups of people or types of people as deserving moral consideration. And then that sets up the possibility for us to do horrific things. So then the question becomes, if that's true, why do we have that on off switch, you know, and how do we immunize ourselves in a way from having that off switch get in the way of a friendlier future? So the argument about where that on off switch comes from is, again, because we were selected to be friendly, we actually became much friendlier towards strangers in a way that other animals are not. It's actually a new social category exists in our species now that other species don't have. It's the in-group stranger. So a stranger who's actually in your group, you know, people we've never met before. Kara, I don't think we met before, right? So we were strangers before today. Now we're buddies. And it's because we love science. We like communicating science. I mean, piece of cake. So that relationship is not possible in other species. We know that we share a social identity and we're going to have a great time together, even though we've never met. That's a human thing. So that evolves. It allows us to expand our social network, to learn in ways from each other that other species couldn't. Technology, culture, takes off. Okay. But as we have this new category evolve, we actually begin caring about those strangers as if they're family. And just like a mama bear who cares about her cubs, and it's the most beautiful thing to see her nurture them. Well, when's the most dangerous time to be around a mama bear? It's if she feels those cubs are threatened. And so it all makes sense then as we love our group more and that includes strangers that share an identity whether it's you know some interest or tattoo or language or food you like you care about them as if they're family but then they become threatened or that identity becomes threatened and then that's the moment where we have this mechanism where we can exclude others from full moral consideration and our empathy can be shut off and that's what sets up this potential for horrific violence and even acceptance or when we learn that others and other groups are being harmed, we actually like 
whatever it is that's harming them, if it's a policy, we would actually want more of whatever that is. And it's amazing to, um, to see evidence that when people feel their group is threatened by another group, when they learn that some policy is hurting the other group, they become more favorable towards that policy. It's going to be interesting to see the contrast from the last, I'll call it what it is, regime and the current I'll call it what I hope it is, administration. I was just having a research design thought of like, wouldn't it be interesting to look at presidents and their dogs and the kind (laughs) of demonstrations that they have or the kinds of interactions that they have? Because it was like British royalty getting married when the Obamas were picking out the right dog for that administration, right? We didn't have that. The last administration was all about the Diet Coke button. I'm just wondering what you do with someone like Teddy Roosevelt, who had like pygmy hippos and all sorts of creatures no one should ever have as a pet. (laughs) It did say a lot about his administration, I think. Um, What's next for you all? Uh, You've got puppy kindergarten. You've got so many irons in the fire. What is on the horizon? Well, we are doing lots of things. We're raising a lot of puppies and trying to see what the impact of that rearing is. But partly because of what we were just talking about, you know, feeling like human nature should inform policy. I have been involved and had a graduate student who's just about to finish up working on that problem. And so we'll continue to do that. One of the things we're really excited about is the solution to that, which is one of the ways that you can prevent this on-off switch kind of toggling is, believe it or not, through cross-group friendships. So one of the most important things that could happen in the next 10 years in this country, if we want to get over this polarization thing, is cross-group friendships. And I don't mean people like waving each other on on the street. I mean, real friendships, like some of your closest friends completely disagree with you politically. And those cross-group friendships basically immunize not only you and your friend, but also basically anyone in the network who knows about that friendship. Because when that friendship is seen and reflected on in relation to whatever's going on in the world, it actually makes it much harder for that switch to flip off because people can't forget that how human that other person is and how everybody in that group must be just like that person. They become kind of a representative. So I think my biggest fear would be that if things continue to become more polarized and if cross-group friendships continue to break down, that allows for this type of intolerance to fester and increase. So so we've been studying what's the impact of contact and cross-group friendships on humanization and dehumanization of different groups. And it does seem that it has a big impact. I cannot wait to read that only and I'm not, this is not an attack, Brian. Oh, no, no, you can't. Oh, only because it's it's so counter to an experience I had. And, and I wrote about it in more of a, in an anecdotal sense of, you know, being in a powerlifting gym and being the only woman in the powerlifting gym. And me thinking I was doing exactly that, changing the hearts and minds of these gym bros to be more accepting of women overall. But in the end, they were just more accepting of me. And it didn't actually transfer out to whatever group I belong to. So that's a really complicated topic, but fascinating. And one that I think every single person has an experience that would be addressed with this. Yeah. And it's not a silver bullet. It's not, you know, like if, for instance, in your case, everybody is now completely accepting. So it's the typical psychology thing where there's big error bars and the, mm-hmm. the effect isn't gigantic. And I'm sure very context specific as well, as well as group identity specific. Yes. I've talked to people, for instance, who were in 
you know, they were in situations where there was genocide and they were explaining to me cases where friends did betray people and do horrible things. Um, but then they said, yeah, but the people who survived, you're right. All the people who survived had friends mm-hmm. who cared for them and were from the other group and hid them or whatever. So yeah, there are error bars. The effect is not a big effect. It tends to be a moderate effect, but it is the most reliable effect there is. And one of the things that we found that's very hopeful is, and, and this replicates other people's findings. This isn't our original thing, but we just replicated it, is imagining contact and imagining friendships with people from other groups actually has a similar effect and has, and, and I can't believe a lasting effect. So really anything we can do to encourage cross-group friendships. And, and one of the most concrete ideas, if you gave me, what would you do with it? If I could use it any way I could, I would immediately go to Washington, D.C. and I would take all, I would invite all the staffers to have bipartisan lunches for free. Because as you know, staffers are all 20 somethings. They're all living in one of the most expensive cities in the world and they're paid nothing. So free lunches, repeated lunches so they can form friendships. Because the scariest thing to me is if those people are in an environment where they're encouraged to see the other political party as not fully human, that terrifies me for our future. I'm teaching anthropology of sports uh, right now this semester. And uh, we were talking about transgender athletes in class. And one of the activities I had them do yesterday is they were all popular media articles because there isn't a lot of work on transgender athletes at this point yet. We, we don't have the sample sizes to be able to do that kind of work, but they were all popular media articles and all in one category fell on pro-trans inclusion and then all in the other category fell on anti-trans inclusion. And I had students read one from each category in their groups. And, cool. discuss. and I had one student be like, I didn't like either of these articles. And I'm like, well, why? And he said they were just talking past one another and there was no acknowledgement of the other side and they would only cherry pick whatever evidence supported their argument and I'm like we'll call him Jim like why do you think I had you do this assignment or do this class activity and the whole point was to understand like the two categories that you are reading are also the two categories that the general public is reading and the general public is either only reading one from category A or only one from category B with absolutely no, no desire even to read from the other side and to understand what those points are. And so I adore, I want someone to give you like a million dollars to do lunches <laughs> and to do them for several years. Like this should be something that happens every single, like it should be a continuous project. Yeah, one of the big findings is that once people have these types of interactions, they realize that people that they viewed from the other political side actually share most of their beliefs and Mm -hmm. have much more similar beliefs than they thought. And they also tend to think that the other group is dehumanizing them or Mm -hmm. seeing them with a, you know, disliking them far more than they actually are. And so, you know, it brings the temperature down in the room. There's Mm -hmm. plenty to disagree about and it's not going to be Shangri-La, but it's certainly not as bad as people think it is when we stop talking. Yeah. And I mean, they can all agree that free lunch is great. So you have a starting (laughs) talking point to begin with. It reminds me of the moral foundations work that John Haight and his colleagues have done, where they find high degrees of overlap in the values that different groups actually hold. Brian, we don't want to keep you anymore. Yeah, this was great. We really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. And, uh, you know, I look forward to uh, following y'all. And uh, thanks for all the good work. 